0: It's told that 200 miles south of El Paso, Texas, deep in the Chihuahuan Desert, there's a rancher who made the desert green. Each morning, the rancher gazed out over the same barren landscape his father's father had. There was no indication that it would ever change. They say that he cut his land into 365 plots, one for each day. By concentrating his cattle, he could concentrate the nutrients his cows produced and give each paddock the time it needed to recover and the soil the perfect conditions to thrive. When the summer monsoons came, and overfilled clouds doused the earth, his ranch's land soaked up the water like a sponge, while the water that fell on the neighbor's land served only to cut deepening arroyos. Eventually, the grasses were knee-high, a drop of green, in the desert sea. The rancher was in tune with the land, and the land gave back. Welcome to Food for Our Planet. I'm Alex.
1: And this is Jet. I'm from central Idaho. Growing up near many farms, I experienced firsthand the less than ideal and often harmful aspects of farming and ranching. From excessive pesticide use to backbreaking, thankless labor and the mistreatment of animals. So when I heard about this story, this El Dorado, I had to investigate.
0: And in that vein, I was born in a subdivision outside of Santa Fe, New Mexico, in the Galisteo Basin on a road called Spur Ranch. Sparse grass and the road's name hinted at the past of cattle grazing. Later research unearthed the fact that not only did my dusty corner of the Galisteo Basin used to be a grassland, but the entire thing did. A horizon bounded by mountains, domed by the blue sky, and filled with swaying grasses. It was lost, as overgrazing and an expanding railroad pushed the ecosystem too far, leaving it broken beyond repair. In the 60s, this land was sold to an oil company and then cut into the subdivision where I was eventually born.
1: If that fairy tale is true, that with
0: smart cattle management, even the desert
1: can be made green, then theoretically we could take the quarter of degraded land in the US, like that of the Galisteo Basin, and return its productivity for both human and animal use. It could also allow us to reduce how much new land we burn to make way for pasture, land like 4.8 million
0: acres of the Amazon rainforest that went up in smoke in 2021. Why stop there? If it's possible, we could transition agriculture, which uses a rightful 38% of the land area and 70% of the fresh water, from a degrader of land to a land restorer. We could grow food and protect important biodiversity in the process. So who is that rancher in the Chihuahuan desert? Is there any
1: more that we can track down about it? And how can we find him?
2: Regenerative agriculture is working in harmony with nature, To repair, rebuild, revitalize, and restore ecosystem function.
0: This is Gabe Brown. He's at the forefront of regenerative agriculture. He's consulted on over 33 million acres of land. He even wrote a book on the subject. If there's anyone who could help us understand regenerative agriculture, it's Gabe. So I asked Gabe how he got started farming regeneratively.
2: I had four years in a row, no crop income, where I lost all my crops to hail and drought. I was 1.5 million in debt. But I started to notice a change.
1: For context, in 1991, his father-in-law sold Gabe this ranch, and it was almost all he had. Then, in 1996, hail ripped through the wheat, and within minutes, no salvageable crop remained. Another blizzard and a drought made it an extremely dark time. But a gleaming light of hope cut through his darkest hour.
2: I started to notice I had earthworms in the soil started to notice more birds, more life return into the land. And the only way I was able to work my way out of it was by focusing on working with nature instead of against her.
0: This key insight, something so cliche it seems ridiculous, underpins all of what Gabe has accomplished. You know, if you can picture
2: the bison moving across the Great Plains and you had elk and deer and then you had predators and everything else. Well, it's not much different on our ranch, but Instead of bison and elk, you have beef cattle, and you have sheep, and you have hogs, and
0: you have chickens. But the key component, the thing that makes his ecosystem tick,
2: movement. You have to leave a long enough rest and recovery period so that that plant fully recovers and can proliferate and build strength into its root reserves.
1: Gabe rests his pastures for 12 to 15 months. By utilizing high-density grazing, exactly the same kind of thing those bison did on the Great Plains, Gabe is able
0: to keep his grass healthy. So his herd of cows spends a day or two in a tiny paddock and then doesn't return to that paddock until over a full year later.
2: But allows much more production, allows greater profitability, allows much healthier soils, greater carbon sequestration, better water infiltration, and... Better nutrient cycling, you know, the benefits just keep compounding positively. So we're moving them every day for the
1: vast majority of the year. And this is how Gabe actually does the magic he does. It's about allowing the soil to hold nutrients in the roots and giving the grass time to recover.
2: Restore ecosystem function, beginning with all life in the soil, moving to all life above the soil.
0: In short, cows, pigs, and chickens replace the historic grazers, the bison, the deer, and the prairie hens, and the rancher replaces the predator pressure, which keeps the system in motion. All this in service of the smallest component of the system, the soil, which provides the nutrients for the grass and the cows. What Gabe noticed is that soil health is key to everything. Let's go learn something about soils.
1: My name is Anna Gomes, and... Part of the soil and environmental biogeochemistry research group here at Stanford. Quite a, a mouthful. Anna is what laymen refer to as a soil scientist, and after three years as a PhD candidate at Stanford University with three published papers, this is exactly who we needed to talk to.
0: As a non-soil person, can you explain to me how soil works?
1: For sure. So soil is alive, um, and we think about it in terms of this dynamic living thing. So in one teaspoon of soil, there's actually over a billion bacteria.
0: To put that into context, that would be as if the human complexity of a place like India, all the millions of interactions, bumping, churning, moving, sleeping, eating, reproducing, all of it is crammed into a spoon. If this network is poor or doesn't exist, then the whole system starts to fall apart.
1: And when you spray pesticides and herbicides, as conventional agriculture tends to do, you poison the soil, do it enough, and this dynamic living thing becomes dirt. I would love them to make a Pixar movie of a soil ecosystem, right? Because people really think it's this dead thing under their feet, you know? But it's much more than that.
0: So much more indeed. And in the same way that Horton heard Who, we need to turn our ears downward and listen to the soil, a symphony in every gram. So... Let's find a ranch and see how they're putting these principles to use. We turned off the two-lane onto a dirt road packed like clay by record rainfall. Green grass painted a 1,000 textures streaked with orange and purple wildflowers, worked its way all the way up the steep walls of the valley. Imagine driving into the old Windows XP background, the green one with the windmills, but a little later in the year, that's what Tomcat looked like. We got out of the car and met Mark Biagi.
3: I came here in 2017, and I'm currently the ranch manager. I like to joke that I grew up on a grass-based
0: dairy that was so backwards it was head of the curve. Mark has seen agriculture from almost every perspective, from his current position here at Tomcat to the more conventional, with ag giants like Cargill and Foster Farms.
1: Mark took us up on this hill, and overlooking the beautiful Tomcat, he showed us just how magnificent this ranch was.
3: So
0: when they put the first grazing plan together here in 2010 with Point Blue. That's the scientific accounting firm that Tomcat uses to track progress and share their results with the world.
3: They cut their property up into 75 pastures to monitor. And they went across the pastures trying to detect native grasses, excuse me, perennial native grasses. And out of the 75 pastures, they only found them in eight of them. They started moving the cows. Two years later in 2013 when they resurveyed And again, we're talking just detection. 55 out of the 75. No planting, no mowing, no spraying, no nothing. Move the cows. So move the cows, let the plant recover. They go through the drought 2014, 2015. The last time we sampled, we were 70 out of 75. Again,
0: no inputs, just management. And this, dear listener, is the beauty of regenerative agriculture. For the plants, the animals, the people, the bacteria. It works because it puts all the things in their place and lets the system just go. Mark passed us along a quote from Gabe, the farmer we heard from earlier.
3: And Gabe (laughs) talks about the fact that he used to wake up every morning trying to figure out what he was gonna kill. Spraying and disking and all that, right? And now he just talks about what he wants to live. So one of the things holistic management talks about is
1: you manage for what you want, not for what you don't want. It's a different approach. And this approach, waking up, wondering what you want to live, has led them to healthier plants, a healthier farm, and healthier food. As for our largest problem, climate change and high-atmosphere carbon, nature can fix that one too. But to Mark, the most important thing is water.
3: Carbon sequestration is, to me, is this big sexy thing that everybody wants to do. Well, carbon is only one part of all the circles that make up the environment. And for me, it's always been water. Water is more important because you don't sequester carbon without photosensors and you don't have photosensors without water. California has a water infiltration problem and that's why we get all this flooding. The water can't actually go in the soil.
0: What Mark is talking about here, this water infiltration, is what makes regenerative agriculture so powerful. Healthy soils hold on to water. Dirt, not soil, is a raincoat. The water just beads up and rolls off. By building soils, making them the focus of the agricultural practice, you're holding on to more water without any kind of reservoirs.
3: So these are rough numbers because it really has been on soil type. So if you increase the top six inches approximately one percent soil organic matter in an acre you can hold about 20,000 more gallons of water. It's about pore space. If you increase the organic matter by one percent, it's just that one percent six inches deep over an acre, it's about 20,000 gallon holding capacity. Again, it depends on soil type. depends on topography, right? But if we just use that number. One inch of rain just pure water over an acre is 27,000 gallons. So that says that 20,000 is about three quarters inch rain. So if you and I are living in a rainfall climate, the last rain that happens, if you have 1% more organic material than I do, you got three quarter inches more rain than I did at the end of the season when it's the most important, because you hung on to the water.
0: Just to reiterate this point, by improving soil porosity by even a small amount, we can make a very accessible reservoir only that, but this water is where the ecosystem needs it. No need to create complex irrigation infrastructure to deliver the water halfway across the state. The water delivers itself. And with all this in mind, let us return to that story we heard in the beginning about the rancher in the desert. That fictional ranch
1: from the introduction, there's nothing fictional about it.
0: The ranch is called Las Damas, owned and operated by Alejandro Carillo in the shadow of Sierra Las Damas in Chihuahua, Mexico. Through smart grazing, Alejandro was able to achieve the impossible.
1: When the 10 inches of rain falls in June, they're only 10 inches. Las Damas puts it in the bank, a bank built from microbes that will last for the year to come. And now this
0: bank is collecting interest. This water has made better grass, and allowed a tripling of Alejandro's herd size when compared to his neighbors. By utilizing regenerative grazing practices, Las Damas and regenerative ranches like it become the least cost producer in their region. These farmers have the lowest cost inputs possible. They don't pay for hay or feed, and they certainly don't need herbicides, pesticides, and tilling. Dr. Jonathan Lundgren at the ESE Foundation determined in a series of studies that regenerative agriculture had a 76% greater profitability over conventional ag. 76%, that's huge. So why in the world aren't more people doing this? Well, I asked Gabe that, and he boiled it down to three reasons.
2: First of all, farmers and ranchers don't know what they don't know. It's not being taught. The agronomists certainly aren't teaching them. You're not gonna learn it from your fertilizer dealer or your chemical dealer or the equipment manufacturer. Because it'll negatively affect their income stream. Fear of the unknown is another. They didn't grow up doing this, so why would they change? It's not easy to go
0: risk your equity every year, you know? The other thing Gabe identifies, a current farm bill, which isn't conducive to change. But these are all things that we can do something about. A better farm bill is in the works and could use voter
1: support. Educational opportunities are improving, and the word on regenerative agriculture is getting out. This podcast is one small part of that
0: trend. As for fear, ranchers are tough folk. They are up for the challenge, especially as people blaze new trails or drive old trails back to the land. We share this planet with all the life we ourselves depend on for survival, and the path forward is not one that abuses it. Regenerative agriculture seems to provide a path towards a solution. By thinking about the land we are actually on and designing relationships that sustain it, we might just be able to make our world a better place. Food for the Planet was written and produced by Alex Strong and Jet Carruth. Special thanks to Laura Joyce Davis, who taught us literally everything we know about audio. And to our wonderful interviewees, who shared their time and knowledge with us, so that we might understand and share. More information on them, as well as the sources we used, can be found in the show notes. Music by Blue Dot Sessions, and episode art by me, Alex Strong. This is Food for Our Planet. Thanks for listening.